97% of salespeople are missing this one thing that if they only knew it would allow them to close 75% more sales. It has nothing to do with charisma, the gift of gab, or whatever else you've been told. Because if you're trying to convince your customer, that means they don't want to buy, which means you've already lost the sale. What sales professionals do is sell customers exactly what they want to buy. They work with the customer to uncover their current challenges, the consequences of those challenges, and how that's impacting them. They then help the prospect describe the ideal solution to their problems, what that looks like, and how that perfect outcome will impact them. And once they can picture that perfect outcome, price is irrelevant. That's right. Sales professionals sell customers exactly what they want to buy because it's easier dealing with a happy customer than dealing with a customer who felt sold. So here's the deal. I explain everything in my live two-day sales workshop, June 14th and 15th in my office. Go to closemoresales.com workshop and you'll be able to close more sales as soon as you get back. Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we've got Alex Camacho and Will Wall with Alex Camacho Buys Houses. They flew in from Mexico and Los Angeles to talk about flipping houses remotely from Hawaii and Mexico. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm Steve Trang, sales trainer. Every month, we help hundreds of people buy more houses at deeper margins. If you want to join us on our training calls, DM me the word sales on Instagram. I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. And the information on this podcast alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you'll take consistent action, you will become one. And this show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to over 2 million cash buyers uh, two million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below. Share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And we do have two newer shows, Pardon the Disruption on Thursdays and Certainty Talks on Fridays. Be sure to check those out. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Alex and Will to answer. You guys ready? Let's go. Yes, sir. All right. So first question is, what got you guys into real estate? Well, I got it back into the back in the mortgage business. I got uh, you know into the business when um, you know I was in banking, and then I went into the mortgage business. Um, and then you know the Great Depression happened, the Great debacle, and um, you know I was kind of younger. I was in my mid twenties, and uh, didn't have that many mentors or good habits or good relationships, and um, kind of lost it all during that time. And then um, I got led into real estate by becoming a real estate agent. And I saw that there was a lot of investors during that time that were making a killing. They were flipping a bunch of houses in SoCal, houses I had seen where it's a lot more a couple years before. And so I got that kind of bug planted to me, in, in me that I thought I, I could be a great investor. Um, I didn't take action for some years, though. I kind of got back into lending, did some Airbnb arbitrage, and did a couple of things. But I always had that seed, Steve, that I think I could be a good real estate investor and house flipper. And so... Um, I started to kind of research back in like 2016 or so how I can get involved because I was making some money with the Airbnb arbitrage. And so uh, once I started to do some research, Bigger Pockets came up, your podcast came up, and I started just doing research. And a lot of it said that, hey, go work for a mentor, go work for another investor, go find somebody that's doing what you want to do. Um, it's a very common message. Uh, so I took that, I took that and I ran with it. I found a job working for an investor. Uh, that was essentially doing what I wanted to do, flipping, you know, 20, 30 houses a year, making great money, um, keeping the small, medium multifamily. I loved his business model, worked for him for like a year. I uh, learned a lot, but really didn't make that much money during that time because, you know, I was paying my dues. So you got your 
teeth kicked in and mortgages. Right? Absolutely kicked in. Yeah. Maybe some people are kind of ex experiencing that right now in mortgages. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, so yeah. uh, you became a realtor, and it sounded like for multiple years, mm -hmm. and then at some point, bigger pockets and this show kind of kicked it off for you. So then I'm guessing it's been in the last few years then that you start actually looking to flip houses. Yeah, well, at the beginning of 2017 is when I started. So working 17. For that so investor. you were a realtor for like nine years, eight nine years. Well, only for about four or five, and then I kind of, like I said, I got back into like the mortgage wholesale side of things, got and it. then I, I worked into an Airbnb arbitrage kind of model for a little bit, and that's what led me to have some income to say, hey, and maybe this is the time for me to become an investor. Got it. Okay. How about you, Will? Well, you know, I actually got my license when I was 18 years old, Steve. So I was in, you know, my high school classes, sitting there reading the real estate you know, practices and principles, you know, right underneath my math books. And I had a job, you know, working great, uh, you know, realtor down in La Jolla, California. And we were just, you know, doing great. And then college came around. And obviously, I, I kind of put my, you know, license on the shelf, finished up school. And like Alex mentioned, you know, I, I kind of just figured out like, hey, if I had a mentor that really kind of coached me in real estate, this could take off. And, and that's when I kind of connected with Alex um, here during the pandemic and was able to say, hey, you know, why don't we partner together and see if we can grow this real estate business together? Got it. So you're in La Jolla. Mm -hmm. uh, so at one point in my life, you know, I lived in La Jolla. Yep. It was a wonderful, beautiful city. And I decided that I couldn't afford that <laughs> to live there as a student. So yep. I, I came back home and said, one day I'm going to go back to La Jolla. Maybe. You and me both. Yeah. <laughs> Once we can afford it, right? Well, you're in LA now, so it's not too bad. Not, not much of a difference in price. Yeah. So, all right. So you decided to work with Alex. So then I guess let's go back to your story then. So uh, you decided to get back into the investing side. What was the first transaction you did, you know, getting into it, whether it was flipping or, or wholesaling? So the very first a flip that I acquired, uh, that I worked on, was working for the other investor. I was just beating, you know, hitting the phones hard. Uh, I was essentially just an inside sales guy and a telemarketer for him. And I was pounding the phone for like a good 60 days or so. Um, and then right around that 90th day, I, I found this foreclosure lead. I had been following up and then um yeah he ended up purchasing the property and he wholetailed it because we got such a great deal on it uh that's one thing i really learned working with him just how he was able to negotiate and, and get these deep discounted deals and then he just cleaned it out i think maybe spent about five grand and sold it and quickly made about 60 grand and uh that's when it was like that proof of concept for me i didn't make much i was making like 2500 a deal from him yeah. but it was like oh i knew i could do this like now you know it's real yeah um where was this uh, this was, uh, I was working in Burbank at the time and the property was in Long Beach. Okay. And so, uh, your first few deals, you were working on someone else's team. Yeah. The first 60 deals. First 60 deals. Yeah. Yeah. So I was working for him for a year and then I, w and I got recruited by a bigger, I would say it's almost like a mini hedge fund type mm -hmm. of company where they were acquiring and buying about 200 properties annually across SoCal. Um, they had different business models, but I worked for them for about a year and a half and I was a acquisition Well, before we manager. get into that, the reason why I'm asking this question is like, there's so many people, you know, uh, in this industry, they're very, uh, in independent. They want to do everything themselves and, you know, a, they don't want to hire a coach, which is something we'll talk about later on, but B, they don't want to work for anybody else either. They want to do everything themselves, but you work for somebody and did your first 60 deals. I need somebody else. Yeah. So yeah. talk about the value of that to someone that's listening to the show. Yeah, of course. So learning this business kind of on, from a book is simple to understand. But when you're talking about all the moving parts of investing and, and wholesaling and you know, sales, marketing, all that, that's very difficult to do yep. without, like you said, either having somebody like paying a coach and then running with information that you learn from them or working alongside 
or for an investor. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, I read this book that I talk about often called Mastery um, by Robert Greene, and he talks about this apprenticeship phase, and I saw it as that. Like, hey, I have to be, you know, I, if I want to be a master real estate investor because that was my goal, um, I have to somehow, you know, learn that from someone else, and go, and I did have sales skills. You know, I mm-hmm. did have, so I took that job initially, but yeah, I was making about half of what I normally make, um, but it was the learning that was seeking, and I think people think that they could just understand the concept of doing real estate investing and all of a sudden they could just jump into deep end yeah. and do it on their own, which is not really, I and mean, we, we all know that's not, the, that's not how So you're works. saying that there's a difference between watching it on YouTube and reading a book and actually being actually in the business. That. Yeah, absolutely. Got so it. Went and did that for a second company and that second company, I learned a lot more and they had a different business model and I had, I did make more money, allowed me to save more mm-hmm. to eventually you know, do it on my own. So you went to go work for the second company and you said they were buying a little bit more. Um, so what was that experience like? That that was also a big learning experience because they were buying volume and they yep. were set up to buy 30 houses a month. And so not only was I seeing a lot more volume for the acquisitions that I was bringing in, but I was able to see the stuff they were buying and they had more systems, more procedures, more things kind of in place because they were a flipping company. They weren't wholesaling. So they were actually taking the deals down. And um, so I just got to learn more structure um, and, because of that, it allowed me to also perform better because I had assistant, I had, you know, support, and then I was able to just to focus on acquisitions and get great at it and just, you know, every day, you know, make offers, talk to people and just focus on that. And in that year and a half, I worked for them. I helped them acquire about 54 houses in SoCal. And it was, it was I could not be doing what I'm doing today without having had that experience. So I've heard for many years that it is really difficult to do business in, at least in, you know, Huntington Beach, Orange County, Los Angeles, San Diego, whatever. So what market were you guys in? Yeah, we're Southern California. But were you guys like inland or were you guys oh, like... Well, we were mainly in core Los Angeles, like South LA, East LA. So then what would you say to someone that says like you can't do deals in Los Angeles? Well, I say that they're just full of crap because yeah. they're not putting in the work to actually do it. And they're just, you know, letting other people influence them without trying themselves to do it yeah. Yeah. or find other people that are doing it and then getting alongside them. That and makes Steve, sense. Your market's a great example of that too. Like Arizona, you have a lot of competitors out here. So, you know, although the price on our properties in California are a little bit higher, you know, the competition out here makes it just as difficult. So I right. agree with what Alex said. You know, if, if you put your mind to it and say, hey, I'm going to go get the deal, it, it really doesn't matter where you are. Right. And you typically know your areas if you grew up in these areas more than other areas. So I see a lot of people that want to go out of state, which there's a lot of value to that. But I think they give up on their own home state if it's expensive, you know, very quickly. I, I think that's the wrong way to go. Um, because you have a lot of resources, you have a lot of knowledge, and you could leverage that. Um, and you don't maybe need to do as many deals. Like our spreads are typically larger, so we don't need to flip a hundred houses a year. And yeah, make, you know, millions and stuff. And that's what I like a lot with you guys' model is like, you know, the deals you guys do instantly, like six figures, right? Yeah, there's a lot of them we get to do at six figures um, or close to six figures because it, it, we're dealing with higher purchase prices right. than maybe in uh, in other parts of the country. So then you work with a second company. It was good. And then at that point, after that, you went on on your own? Yeah, that's when I went on my own. I saved a couple hundred thousand dollars, and um, I had the knowledge. I had, the, you know, all the experience. They didn't really want to let me take a management position or something a little bit more senior that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so we left amicably. I, you know, got them a lot of deals. It made them, I made them well over a million dollars. And so we left on great terms, and, you know, I, I still ended up, you know, staying in touch with some people there. But that's when I started my company about three years ago. Uh, how come you wanted to go in a management position? Well, I just wanted more uh, control or more ability to influence like 
what I saw was working with like off market and they were just buying off of, you know, the, um, the, the auction. Mm-hmm. And they were also buying on MLS with our department and some from wholesalers, but we hadn't really tapped into the off market. And I wanted to get being more in charge of that because every time they gave us some great off market leads, like we, I slam dunked them. We got them deal. We got them better deals than we were buying on the MLS. Yeah. And they didn't want to scale that up. There was kind of like, there was, there was not, there wasn't enough, I think opportunity for me uh, upside and I had already learned enough and I saved enough. So I was like, well, if you don't want to let me kind of drive the bus, all good, you know, but right. I'm going to go drive my own bus. then. All right. So you left and, uh, and, and did this on your own. So when did you, uh, what year did you go off and do this on your own? 2019. 2019. Okay. And then when did you guys partner up? Probably about 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic. About okay. a year, a year and a half into it. I you know, Will came on board. Okay, so tell me about that journey now that you're doing this on your own because you already have, you already understand how this business works now. So did you, what was what was your first deal and what kind of struggles did you have? Well, the uh, first deal on my own. Um, so that, there were still struggles because what happened is since I had worked for other people, they bought the properties in their name, right? Mm-hmm. In their yep. buying entity. And not, I was not on title. I just had an agreement they would pay me, you know, commissions or they would pay me bonuses based on what we agreed upon. And so when I went to, I found a couple of deals on my own off market. Well, they, the hard money lenders didn't want to lend me money, even though I had good credit, I had money in the bank, I had, I had experience, you know, kind of quote unquote. So I ended up having to partner up on a couple of deals like joint venture where I gave up half of the equity. Uh, but my, then my uh, equity partners, they, they brought in the money. Um, I didn't have to actually use that money that I had saved. And I did a couple of deals that way. And then the hard money lenders then began to lend to me yeah. after like deal number uh, two or three that I did with another joint venture partner. Uh, what was the split on those? I actually gave away 50% of the equity, but then we were able to, um, like, they ran the project, the project management, because it's an area I don't like at all, I'm not great at. And then um, I just assisted all, all the way around, brought the deal, and got 50% and didn't put any money in, too. So yeah. it did kind of, it was a win-win, but I did give up great deals. Uh, I think both of them almost made six figures, so I gave up a lot of equity. But Yeah, well, you yeah. absolutely did, right? But the reason why I'm bringing this up is because, again, for the guys that are listening right now, um, hard money lenders are pulling back. Mm-hmm. Right, you have to put more down payment now. Uh, interest rates might be higher. Credit might have to be higher. Right, okay. so it's a little bit harder to lend right now or to borrow as hard money. Agree. But you have access to you know friends and family that have capital. You can split it fifty fifty. Right. If you don't have access to private money right now or hard money right now, you can get private money. Or if you don't have, if you don't have cash in your own pocket, you can get these fifty fifty joint ventures. I mean, that's how I started when I. Mm-hmm. It was a lot more than two <laughs> deals when I first started and. Credit was trash and didn't have cash. Uh, I was doing a lot of 50-50 deals to get my business going. Yeah, and lean on those other people to help you, right? Right, absolutely. And I think another point point on that is that a lot of people don't get started in this business or think that they they, they need money. And although that is somewhat correct, uh, you do you can get great at the deal finding part of it for not that much money, and then you could, like you said, take down some deals and then split them with other people. Um, but just make sure that you, cause I also had some bad experiences with that too, where like you know, I was, well, um, that I wasn't on title. So then one of the properties, like my partner wanted to keep, for example, and I knew he was going to, he was more of a buy and holder. And I was, you know, at that point, a little bit more on the flipping side to build capital. So I knew he was going to want to keep it cause it was a duplex. And, you know, I ended up, you know, making about 10,000 less than I probably would have because we kind of disputed a little bit on like, what is the real value mm-hmm. he's keeping and I'm not, he's getting all the extra benefits. So. There was some there, and then later on after that, what I did is I just made sure that all my paperwork was in order. I had, right. you know, agreements. I had stuff that it, before it was kind of a handshake thing. So, you know, just a lot of learning. I made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lessons that's the reason learned, why we right? have the show. What's that? Lessons learned. Yeah. Lessons yeah. learned. And again, this goes back to, like, I mean, we're talking about it here, but, like, until you actually do it, until you're in the weeds, yep. 
and you make these mistakes, all right, and then you really learn it, mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. So, um, the joint you, venture. Yeah, so you did the joint venture, but you said there were a lot of other lessons learned. So what were some other lessons learned in that time period? Another big one was um, I um, ended up buying another course, a wholesaling course, mm -hmm. um, to get better at the off-market at the beginning part where it wasn't around yet. And I had a kind of a smaller team, but I, I wasn't really a great leader. And I made those mistakes of just kind of putting just cheeks in the seats, right? You know, just like, hey, this person is motivated. They sent me a DM on Instagram. They seem like they're they're pretty smart. Like, yeah, well, you're operations them. guy, you know, you're, you're acquisitions and... So at the beginning, I made a lot of mistakes on that too, where I was expecting kind of like uh, higher results from kind of you know, C players, B players, like people that were just not, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like at, at, the, at the higher caliber there. And so um, I started to work a lot on my leadership there. Um, but part of the reason I, I, I mentioned the wholesaling course is because I also made a mistake where I bought the course and I wasn't really ready to implement because I had the weak team. I was a weak leader. I had too many things going on. And so I think people make that mistake too. They, they pay for an expensive course or they actually sign up for coaching and whatnot, but then they don't implement the stuff they're learning. They're not ready to really implement. And I made that mistake too, where, you know, I made some deals happen through that, that um, course, but I certainly didn't get the best return on investment because yeah. um, again, I was just, it was a weak in implement, implementation there. And then um, also I just didn't, I wasn't good at training people. I would just bring people on and then I wouldn't really have some type of organized structure for them to be onboarded. And so like they got, re again, part of the weak leadership. So that was a, a couple got more it. mistakes I made there. And then how did you guys connect? Well, I think obviously, you know, you, you guys talked on it before, right? The apprentice model. So, you know, something for me that was just super attractive was not getting those bumps, not getting those bruises that, you know, people like you guys have already gotten, right? You've already taken those L's. You've already taken those lessons. You've already gotten the hard money lenders on board. You've already gotten the, the, the track record. And so, um, you know, for me, I was selling and I'm still selling uh, Los Angeles Chargers season tickets. And so I'm going through all the different real estate offices in LA and I'm, I'm selling agents. I'm getting them bought in on seats so that they can use it for networking, you know, for giving out to their, um, you know, title reps, mortgage reps, you know, everybody who helps them with their business. And once I went through all the real estate offices, I started going after investors. That's what I found Alex and was like, and we had known each other for five or 10 years uh, before this. But when I really kind of started following in on him, I was like, wow, you know, and I'm going into these real estate offices giving, you know, presentations on the stadium and you look up on the leaderboard and, and it's like, wow, you know, these guys are making these gross commissions earned of like, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, some of these top agents. Mm -hmm. And I would target those top agents to sell them seats. And then when you're talking to them, they're like, yeah, we're not doing this all off of, you know, retail volume. A lot of this is investment volume. Mm -hmm. And that's when, I, you know, the light bulb kind of went off. Like, hey, if I can find an investor that's already doing this, help them grow what they're already doing, you know, we could get something together. And that's what Alex and I kind of came together and, uh, you know, we're able to do. Did he close you? Um, actually, I closed him because <laughs> the first thing I was, I was looking for someone acquisitions at first mm -hmm. just to help me out because I was moving to Hawaii. So I was like, oh, and, you know, I know Will, like, he is a closer. Like, he, he's a salesperson. And I have talked to him many times. And, we were acquainted through other, you know, through the Hollywood scene before. And, and so I was looking for someone to replace me because I knew I wasn't going to be able to, you know, buy the deals the same way um, as, you know, if I'm going to be in Hawaii. So that's how he came on board. But, you know, with like traction and but the you didn't buy the season like tickets. No, I didn't buy the season tickets. No, no. tickets. He, went, he took me to the whole song and dance. So he didn't close me. On that. <laughs> I ended up closing him. He was trying to close me. I closed him. <laughs> All right. So he came to you, sell you season tickets, and then you convinced him to change careers. Yeah, well, he was already interested, but I, I did convince him, like, hey, man, look, because uh, I knew eventually he was going to go do it on his own anyway, so I was like, I might as well sign this guy, you know, yeah. like, and that's kind of how it worked out. All right, so you had the head start. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then 
what was the beginning like? Because, you know, uh, Alex is mentioning he was not quite the leader he, he is today. Yep. So what were some of the uh, challenges when you guys first started working together? Well, I mean, you know, one of the biggest challenges is, uh, you know, Alex moves out to Hawaii, right? And so uh, up to this point, I've maybe gone on five, ten appointments with Alex. And it's like, all right, man, you're going to be able to do these appointments on your own? And I was like, of course, me being the new guy, I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do this on my own. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, little did we both know, like, this was going to turn into about a, a three to four month period of time where the business did not have an acquisition. You know, we were mm -hmm. still working on our, our active deals that we had in the pipeline, but we went about four months without an acquisition. And that was, um, you know, probably the biggest struggle for us was, hey, is this something that we can still do? Can we still acquire properties with Alex living in Hawaii and me being the kind of the main guy here on the floor, on the boots, on the ground, doing mm -hmm. the acquisitions? So you guys are having difficult conversations? Yeah, a lot, of Zoom, a lot of Zoom meetings. Yeah. Like, yeah, I was like... To the point where you almost were coming back from Hawaii almost. Yeah, well, I, I remember vividly coming back and thinking I was going to kill their first deal because, like, they got a deal and I'm like, oh, this is cool. Like, I didn't actually, like, lock it up myself. All I did was, like, send the EMD. And I was, I was excited, but at the same time, I was concerned. I'm like, what if they miss something and I'm that guy that flies in and then tell, tells them, like, hey, this is we got to cancel this deal or we got to renegotiate because yeah. this, the numbers are off. And sure enough, they didn't miss anything, but it took... Almost four months where we were just yeah. beating our heads. I didn't know if it was going to work. He didn't know if it was going to work. Um, but we kept making the offers. We kept on, you know, having the meetings. We kept on trying to get better. Um, and then finally, we got that deal. I'm, I'm sure he remembers the, the property. I still remember it. And um, that was kind of like, hey, we got something here now. So, for clarity, what are you guys' roles within the organizations? Well, I initially started as acquisitions, right? And again, you know, you guys touched on this. Sometimes it's worth it to take that entry-level role, right? Alex mm -hmm. was working in acquisitions. He had already done that. He had already grinded his teeth um, and, you know, gotten that experience. And so for me, it was, hey, can we get some acquisitions going? When I, you know, first started with Alex, it was, you know, hey, you did 10 houses, you did 12 houses last year. What if we were to double that? Mm -hmm. You know, and then it was, okay, well, what if, what if we could do that? And again, we're at four months in and we haven't gotten any acquisitions. So, you know, the reality just starts to set in like, hey, man, we might not double that. We might actually have that, you know? And it was, Hey, th this is going to be a tough conversation to have. So once we got the first couple of acquisitions going and, you know, again, you'll, you'll notice this, Alex wanted to get into management positions. Then we kind of both had a conversation where it was like, Hey man, you're actually pretty good at acquisitions, but you have some other skills as well. And that's when we kind of said, Hey, why don't you kind of take over the COO role and kind of, you know, operate the business and push the business forward. And, you know, Alex kind of took over the, the CEO role of, of more of the executive side of things and the face of the business and, and really kind of developing our big relationships that help us grow. Yeah, so the way I would say it is, is Will really kind of helps run the operations and at the same time heads you know, acquisitions. And then my role mainly it revolves around, you know, the higher you know, relationships, um, the social media, um, you know, also, you know, CEO's job, a lot of it's financial. So, you know, dealing with a lot of the, you know, the financial part of what we do. And then uh, just making sure that, you know, we have like a direction that we're going because, you know, we recently bought our first multifamily here in Arizona, yeah. which I'm really proud to say I, I love this market. And oh. um, but part of all that was, that, hey, we've actually started making some money here with the flipping. Um, do we want to own a bunch of single family houses in Southern California? We'll, we'll, we're holding some for sure. We got some great burrs, but um, higher level, we're like, no, like, and so I had to work on that higher level stuff, too. We're like, hey, what are we going to do with this? You know, because allocation of capital is extremely important, you know, once you start making some. Yeah. So uh, I focus a lot on that, like, hey, where are we going with this? And then, um, so, uh, and he's also great at social media as well. 
and he's you know a great ambassador for the brand and whatnot and he's built his own i mean it's funny we joke around a lot like when we met you at the ryan pineda course i'm sure we'll talk about that or the mastermind like you knew who he was but you didn't know who i was yeah and it was it was fine because like you know he's built his brand up and i, I want all my team to you know to also kind of like it's it's been a valuable tool for us uh social media so we continue to double down on it everybody so going back to you saying there's four months right where you guys weren't buying anything was it because of covid or is it because of something else that was a little before covid so it wasn't because that was because they weren't getting deals deep enough or they weren't getting the deals that really fit our buy box mm -hmm. um because we mostly mostly you know flip so uh that's why we we were kind of like just beating our heads like hey no this deal's not good enough this deal's not good enough and then so we what, finally got one what was the situation before and what and what changed well, I think the biggest thing for us was really when I first got into acquisitions, uh, a lot of people have this happen as well. They'll see how many different acquisitions models there are, right? It's okay. I could cold call. I could text message. I could drive for dollars. I could go door knocking. I could call, you know, MLS agents. I could do those. And I tried to do all do 10 of them at once. Yeah. And, you know, again, I'm, I've never even had an acquisition from an MLS agent. I've never had an acquisition from any of these sources. And I'm going all in on all of these sources and it just obviously didn't work out right and so right. i think what really kind of shifted it for us was going back to the basics which is hey there's deals already on the mls if we can target those deals on the mls and get them under contract then we have an opportunity to kind of move forward and that's the direction you guys ended up going correct yeah gotcha yeah. and the initial part he was just you know doing what i was doing because a lot of my deals were from the mls um, despite what people say there, there is deals there but you just have to get after it yeah. gotcha Okay, so um, you're living in Hawaii now at this time. Yes. Right, and we're talking about like, you know, flipping 25 houses a year remotely and, um, you know, some, some of the challenges that, that occur with that. So the first one, you're like, you had to dot all the I's, cross your T's yourself, verify all the data. Mm -hmm. So after the first deal was smooth and it was good, did you still have those issues or it was like, the trust grow like how did you handle that yeah that continued to, uh, to grow because it was like the trust but verify like okay we're we're i'm buying this house like are we going to make money does it fit the business model that we have and then so the guy that started we started to get that consistency where we're, we're back to where we're you know buying a couple houses a month and then um you know the trust continued to grow because i was looking at numbers although i was remote uh keep in mind i had worked on 70 80 deals you know before i moved to hawaii and i, I grew up in southern california so like i know these areas like the mm -hmm. back of my hand and and I know my numbers very well because I, you know, I love the acquisition side. Um, so the trust kept growing, but also they kept getting better. That's what okay. the point is. Like the, the, I got became a better leader, and they became better at everything they were doing. And then we all start to elevate and say, okay, well now we're consistent game deals. Now we have a real business here. And then we were able to attract some private lenders. We we're able to attract some other team members to kind of join the team through continuing to like show what we were working on. Um, because around that time too, we started our own kind of weekly webinar. Um, because we didn't see it happening. We didn't see like a weekly investor meetup slash webinar um, because we didn't see anybody in Southern California doing kind of that. So we, we thought, hey, we should do this because we want to connect with other people around. What we're doing is starting to work. Um, and, you know, that we've grown our, we like to call our dealmakers tribe mm -hmm. that way. Um, and we have, you know, a, a great Facebook group there. And it, it just, it started to kind of really balloon after team started getting more acquisitions, getting better at what they're doing. And we've always continued to reinvest too, like in the masterminds, courses, all that stuff. So, um, you know, I give them access to everything so then that way they can continue to grow too. And um, that's one thing when I was getting started, I didn't like that. I worked for other people, but it really felt like the people I worked for only wanted me to know just enough to make the money, but mm -hmm. that was it. And I don't have the same mindset. I want everybody in my, you know, organization to be, you know, eventually 
to be able to own real estate to for it to impact their lives as well, not just help me make a bunch of money either. Right. I, I you know, Will is buying a house hack. Um, we own several properties together. He's part owner in the 18 unit, but he also worked his butt off for a year and a half with me. So you know? why Hawaii? <laughs> Great question. Why not? Um, it's why. Um, it's nice, but <laughs> you seem a little, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hard charging. <laughs> and what I noticed in Hawaii is they drive the speed limit or lo or slower or slower. <laughs> so it's completely like there's island time, and then there's like you know what we do here in America, right? Like the 48 states, the two to very different speeds. Yeah. So I would say the two main things was uh, getting out of the pandemic in LA, and then uh, proximity to Brandon Turner, one of my mentors. Um, I went on vacation uh, to Hawaii around the time as soon as I quit the second company I was working for. Um, I wanted to take a long vacation. I went to Hawaii. Um, we ended up meeting Brandon. Um, he invited me to a mastermind that was like literally 10 days later. And I said, yes, I came back. That's where I met Ryan Pineda, where I you know, built that relationship with Brandon and several other amazing uh, entrepreneurs, investors. And um, I kind of left with the th thought of that, that second trip, the mastermind, like, man, there's a lot of ugly houses here too. Like, I, you know, <laughs> you imagine Hawaii, you think like it's perfect, but there's a lot of fixer-uppers fixer there too. So I left thinking like, well, what if I could flip houses in Hawaii? Um, but it was just kind of a seed planted. But then like a year passed by and then the pandemic hit. And then, you know, Brandon hit me up and said, hey, you know, if you're uh, you know, open to maybe, you know, working and doing some deals over here in Hawaii, why don't you, you know, you love it, come out here. So it was kind of like an open invitation, mm -hmm. um, nothing too formal. And then we kind of worked some things out, but um, ended up, he decided to kind of focus more on obviously bigger pockets and uh, the open door capital and whatnot. But he left the door open for me to go out there, be a little bit closer to him. You know, there's also other investors in Maui. But you're right. Look, Maui has been pretty slow paced. But I do travel back to L.A. And then um, about a year ago, I started living part time in Mexico for kind of that reason, too, that, it, you know, Maui, Oahu is a little bit better fit for me overall mm -hmm. with pace wise because there's more to do. Um, but like Maui's special. So. Um, it'll always be close to my heart, but yep. right now I am kind of transitioning to moving a little bit closer back to LA because we have grown the business to a point where it just makes more sense for me to be there, not not so remote. But I, the main reasons were because I was getting out of LA. It was a, it wasn't a cool place to be during the pandemic. And no, then I don't think I, anyone liked LA during the pandemic. <laughs> and I then, mean, we uh, had uh, was it Havasu became a really hot spot. Oh yeah, uh, during the pandemic. All right, so then uh, let's talk about you know flipping remotely. So you're the visionary living in Hawaii. Will is executing within LA, but you guys are also in four states. You guys, you guys start in LA and then and then started adding states, or like did you guys like immediately go in multiple states because you went multiple marketing channels. So yeah. well, no, it was the multiple marketing channels were mainly in LA. But when Alex, you know, landed in Hawaii and we had boots on the ground, now you know now we're able to say, okay, well, what if we were to get a property out there? Mm -hmm. So Hawaii kind of spearheaded our, our growth into multiple states, um, and then actually. You know, when you guys live in Hawaii? Yeah, we have about four active, pro yeah, four active projects on three different islands right nice. now. So we have one on oh, the Big Island, different islands too. Yeah, yeah, Oahu and and Maui. So it's multiple islands, multiple states. Um, you know, if there's a deal and and it needs, you know, repairs and needs work done, um, you know, it's typically something that's within our expertise. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna try and get into that. Yeah. So let's talk about the. So the way I would describe it is that we were, you know, California based, and then I moved to Hawaii. So we did some deals there, but we figured that the market to a very unique market and we'll take deals as you know i think that will make the most sense for us or things that maybe we want to keep but we're really not looking to scale that and then we bought in arizona because we, we found that to be the best for our multifamily kind of targets and goals and then we happened to buy something 
in in um, Las Vegas recently that just kind of fell in our lap. And you know, we've got other things that have come up potentially there, but so I, I'd say it's more accurately to say three states and four. Yeah, yeah. Predominantly LA and, and Hawaii, yeah. yep. which are nice markets to flip in. So yeah. let's talk about operations, right? We're talking about how to flip 25 houses a year remotely. So like what are two or three key processes and systems you need in order to be able to flip that many, that many houses? Yeah, I mean, a big part of ours is our virtual team. Um, so although Alex is in Hawaii, Mexico, I'm in Los Angeles, we do have a large team base that is virtual. Um, and this goes well with our business model, right? Alex and I are not together all the time. We do a lot of Zoom meetings, so we're able to bring in other team members that can do those Zoom meetings for us. So um, the first one was, as Alex mentioned, project management wasn't really his cup of tea. And I'd be lying if I said it was mine as well. You know, I still to this day don't know whether to use a hammer or whether <laughs> to use a screw and a, a, you know, a drill. It just it doesn't work well for either of us. So the first thing that we had to do was say, hey, let's take note. Let's take account of what we are good at and let's figure out what we aren't good at. And let's go ahead and bring those people in, those qualified people in. And, you know, Alex will talk about it as well. But we wanted to bring in A plus players in those specific roles because that's how we were going to elevate our team overall was bringing in the right people in the right seat. Yeah. So um, what I would say about that is the uh, first thing is we run kind of the traction model mm -hmm. um, and where we have a all team meeting uh, every week, a level 10 meeting. And that's been kind of the cornerstone for us because it, it sets the tone for the week. Everybody has kind of quote unquote their marching orders um, and everything's pretty clear on what your goal is. Our goal is, is as a company and all that. So I think the level 10 meetings that we have, like every beginning of the week, we had them on Mondays, but we recently transitioned to doing more on Tuesdays because so much happens on Mondays. Um, so I think that's one big one. And then also that weekly webinar I discussed earlier or meetup, it kind of helped unify the team a lot because we had mm -hmm. this kind of all purpose of like, because the, the level 10 meeting is internal, right? Where we're make the team is, um, you know, knows what they need to do. Everything's very clear. Everybody's aware of what's happening in the company as a whole in that meeting. And then the webinar is more an external thing where we're working together as a team to make an impact on the, you know, where we're doing for our community and for the, you know, where we're doing business. And I think that's, those two things have helped us kind of stay together because we're all in different areas. Um, and so, you know, just having that clear vision of this is what we're building a company. We're going to be flipping this many houses. And then we're going to do with this, with this many houses, this much profit, we're going to position it for these type of you know, acquisitions like the multifamily. So, you know, as though being a visionary, seems to be like cool, but it's hard because you're leading other people and the division that you're setting is dictating like how, you know, part of their life. So I think that's not something to take lightly. And I think, you know, very deeply. And I, I consult with a lot of my mentors too, because, you know, you don't want to lead people to failure. Right. Right. So I think that, that that's, um, but to, to just give a couple of tools or things that I think that have been very helpful for us, I'd say those are two big ones. So going back to, you were saying the virtual team. Yep. So virtual as in virtual in Los Angeles or virtual like virtually around the world? Yeah, virtually around the world. I mean, we have uh, virtual team members down in Mexico um, and multiple different states down in Mexico. Alex traveling down to Mexico obviously allowed him to kind of connect with some of these people in person. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've also gone in, out and, and gotten some team members out in the Philippines as well. So then the project manager is where? That's, I think, an important piece we should mention. Um, mm -hmm. Being part of the uh, Ryan's coaching program, I saw that... that he mentioned that there was this business model where you could just pay project managers like a flat fee and then mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have like a, a payroll employee that you're paying, you know, 50, 60,000 a year. Because for us, like since a lot of our projects are not like, you know, you know, LA is big, it's, it's a massive territory. So 
having somebody drive, you know, two hours from one project to others is not a good use of time. So we we started to implement that where we picked handpicked a couple uh, solid project managers that we'd pay them a flat fee. And then their job was to make sure that the property, once they got the property, they had a full scope of work going and that they had that project basically from when we bought it to when it listed. And then they would get a, a fee for getting that project to the finish line, at least to listing stage or birth, you know, refinance stage. And then we'd give them a bonus once if it hit all our numbers as well. So I ended up paying a lot more project management overall, but I just, we don't have the, so much of a headache or having to manage somebody that's kind of running around with it like their chicken, like a head cut, you know, with their head cut off. So this guy's an uh, independent contractor. Kind of, yeah. These have, guys. So it's multiple guys that we have in, in different regions of LA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now we have one virtual project manager that manages all of those people so yeah. she's well, down I would in say they, they provide they provide direct support to the project manager so that way they're like negotiating with contractors they're doing the things that actually move the project forward not like sitting there looking at receipts and stuff like they're yeah. handing it off to the so there's one person team. who's virtual uh-huh. where's she well it's actually two so we had to get her an assistant she's down in mexico and then it became too many receipts too many you know data points for her to handle so we got an additional person out in the philippines that kind of helps more with the back-end paperwork so that again, our, our Mexican counterpart can actually directly influence and help our project managers here in the States. I love that your VA has a VA. Cause I remember I said that in a, in a, in a call once and they're like, how can your VA have a VA? It's like, yeah, yeah. she has an assistant. They, they need it. Virtual yeah, as well. they do. If they're yeah. superstars, they need yeah. it. So yeah. you have a VA with a VA and she's supporting the four project managers. And those guys then are just marketing are, are managing subsections of LA. Correct. So they're going to the properties, driving the properties, dealing with the subs. Yeah, well, there's we have a project manager for the Arizona property, mm-hmm. and we have a project manager for the Hawaii property, and then we have a, a, a three project managers in LA. So they're and like they're five. all and they're all independent, so they don't need you. Like you're not feeding them directly; they get other projects they're working on. Yeah, right? yeah. So they work on other. Uh, one of them is the avid investor. Sometimes we'll you know we'll partner up on a deal in there. Sometimes he'll lend us money on a deal. Um, but he's just like a, it's a very, it's kind of a hybrid relationship that developed where he wanted to flip more. Um, because he holds a lot and then we want to hold more in it. And he, he is in Antelope Valley, an area that is a little bit remote in, in, yeah. in, in Southern California. So, um, you know, that's worked out very well. And then we've kind of groomed another one of our uh, project managers um, that he had the, the, the profile, the, mm-hmm. the type of personality profile for a project manager, not acquisitions. And he's been an absolute stud. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then we also uh, have someone else that kind of more in the Joshua Tree area. And that's kind of remote. So, we partner up on a deal and then we end up buying a couple properties that he's managing. So really it's, uh, since rehabbing property is a real pain in the neck, um, you know, you the person that's in charge of getting that, you know, project to the finish line is very important. So I don't mind paying them a little bit more and, and, and then maybe having some paper, more payroll employees. Uh, I, I like that business model for us. It's worked for us. Yeah. Got it. So then we were talking about the tools. Let's talk about sourcing. Like how are you finding these deals to, to flip? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, again, if you look, Across our portfolio, a lot of our transactions are coming from the MLS, Mm -hmm. but a lot of ours are coming from social media. Um, You know, we have, like Alex mentioned, the Facebook group, the webinar. We just hosted an event in Los Angeles, a massive real estate investor networking event with over 250 people that were out interested in investing. And at some point, those people will get to a deal. They will get to a project and they will need help with it. And as long as we're there and we've been providing value throughout um, you know, we've seen a good good deal flow come to us from just people within our network, within our tribe that have seen our success and have heard us talk about our success mm-hmm. and have said, hey, Will, I, I don't want those bumps and bruises either. You know, can we partner on this deal and get this thing to the finish line together? So building a community. Um, 
Yeah, community has really been important yeah. for us. So, I mean, we have, uh, multi- I mean, we've done the off-market, we've done the cold calling, we've done text messaging. But in, in the last six months to eight months, I'd really, actually with the last year, I would say the majority of our deals have come from, you know, wholesalers, relationships that I've had in the past, um, MLS, social media, uh, networking. It's all kind of combined. But yeah, it, part of it has been that we've, and I, I heard this from somebody in a mastermind before, and I, I, I ran with this, like, you, you need to become like a buying entity. You need to become like a known buyer in your area. Um, that seems pretty obvious, but it takes some time. You know, you know, there's a lot of people in your market. So, you know, it's a, that's a long game, right? That's what social media is. So um, we've kind of doubled down on it because we've seen it work. But mm-hmm. yeah, we've, uh, and we also have a very specific buy box. Like, we're not trying to go do a bunch of ADUs, or we're not trying to do a bunch of the new development. Like, we're great at flipping entry-level single-family houses across SoCal. There's a lot of price points there, a lot of territory to cover. So that's what we do. And we rarely, we'll take a heavy rehab here and there, mm-hmm. but that'll have to be a much deep discount, a much more deep dis- discounted deal because it's going to take some bandwidth from the, the kind of cookie-cutter stuff that we're kind of doing already. So um, we've, you know, took our buns, buns and bruises, and we'll take on some heavier projects. But we're, we're good at a certain uh, business model, and we just kind of lock in on that. And right. people kind of know, like, this is what they're looking for, so they think of us because we're also kind of constantly out there. Um, so one thing I was, I was actually on a call right before this, where I was, uh, consulting with a guy, he's talking about, he just had, uh, he just wrapped up a very ugly business divorce. Right. And you know, uh, I've said this on the, on the show many times, right? I think partnerships are really hard, really hard to manage. And you know, it's really difficult to keep everybody happy. But I'm also one of the biggest hypocrites because I have way more partners, I think, than most people I know. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys maintain a good partnership? Great question. I mean, I, you know, I think the biggest thing for both of us is every year we kind of sit down and we talk about both the company goals, our individual goals, and where we both see the company going. So, you know, we've had conversations where Alex has said, hey, Will, you know what, I, I could see myself exiting the company in a couple of years and, and, you know, kind of just letting you take over. And then we've had conversations going the other way, which is, you know, hey, we could really grow this into something really big together over the next couple of years. And mm-hmm. um, I think as long as at every stage of the partnership, you reconnect and you realign and, and you make sure, hey, your goals are the same as my goals and we're both hitting both of our goals. And if we need to adjust any of those goals, we can do that together. Um, that's been one of the biggest things on, on our end, I think, keeping our partnership happy. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would uh, say that um, we, we come across this term kind of roles and goals and we talk about it often um, because uh, you know our roles are evolving. The role he has is different than when we first met, so is my role. So I think as long as we both feel like we're we're making an impact, we're we're accomplishing our goals. Like one of his big goals was to buy his own property, house hack it, and I'm happy, you know, that we, he's got that done. He's right at the finish line and on getting that done. And so, and he's helped out uh, so much with managing the team that I don't, frankly, don't really want to do that much of because it's not really yeah. I don't like managing people that much. Or and he's much better at it than I am. So I think, uh, and then when we talk about revenue and we talk about that, like there's a constant conversation that because. Just like I left that other company was I probably would have stayed longer if had they just, you know, given me kind of a couple things I wanted that really, frankly, I deserved mm-hmm. from all my production. But they didn't see it that way. So I have a very open you know, policy with, with Will. Like, let's talk about it every year. Let's, if we need to talk about it sooner, we talk about it sooner. Because uh, for me, it's not about, you know, just all numbers and, and zeros and all that. It, it's about what we're actually building. And if it's benefiting all of us and we're going to both get to our goals. If that's going to be together, let's do it together. If it's going to be somewhere, you know, where we go different directions, then we'll just talk about that and be amicable about that. But I think we both recognize that we can kind of build something better together than apart because I do things that he doesn't do well and vice versa. 
And then um, I'm not greedy and he's not greedy. We're not like you know, counting pennies like, oh, hey, you know, you know, I paid, paid for that. I paid for that. And that's why I liked about Will from the beginning that it, it was all about getting the results, getting the work done. And then like we know we'll make money. And he didn't. He never complained about not making money at the beginning. And a lot of people that wanted to work with me did. And not just those are people that didn't stick around because when the hard work showed up, they left. But Will kept on showing up. And that's why we're here. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of valuable lessons there if everyone is watching. I mean, me personally, right? Like I just went through uh, Max and I, we parted ways. It's an amicable uh, breakup, but yep. you know, listening to you talking about like, you know annually, like let's compare, like what do you want, what do I want, what is, what's the direction for the company, and we didn't do that, so that's totally on me for not you know intentionally uh, doing that. So and sometimes you and, get and, lost, right? You think everything's going good, it's like yeah. hey, we don't need to do that, but like Alex said, sometimes it isn't annually. Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's midway through the year. It's like hey, do we, we need you know do we need to discuss something now? And as long as we kind of make sure that we have the right alignment. Um, I, you know, we've gone through obstacles before and we'll, we'll, you know, we'll continue to go through them. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I think part of that being the remote has made me be more conscious about that. And I, not only with him, but with the rest of the team and checking like, Hey, do you still like working here? Do you still like, and you know, we've, uh, one of our uh, long-term virtual assistants, she's going in a different direction, but it's amicable and, you know, cause people roles change. So you can't expect people to be happy forever, but you got to check in with your team and see where things are at because if they're not engaged. And um, that's also, uh, affecting productivity mm-hmm. and, and morale and all that. And I, I noticed that recently we'll had gotten a little bit, he, he was frustrated with some of the results that the you know, virtual team was doing, and, and then it was reflecting, and we had to kind of kind of group up and say, hey, hey, where are we going with this? And we got to you know, kind of get things back on track, and we, were, you know, we do that constantly. Yep. And then the other thing I want to talk about was uh, private capital. So you guys have raised over $3 million in private capital. So I was saying earlier, you know, for a lot of guys that can't get hard money, right? Like, hey, you can just go 50-50 with people. But you guys, on top of that, raise private capital. Talk about that, uh, that journey. Yeah, so um, I was using my money for, for, you know, forever that I had saved up and continued to use and we were flipping houses. But when it got to a point where we were getting more opportunities presented to us, then we were able to, you know, to actually fund ourselves. And that's where we went to, you know, turn to certain, you know, initial early on uh, money partners that came in and said, hey, we want to invest with you. Uh, I, for a long time, I didn't want to take any private capital just because I wanted to prove that, you know, with my own money that I, I could do, do this it. and I'd work for other investors and, it, it's cool and all when you're working for other investors, you're making less money, but you're also using their money. Mm-hmm. And and so I think sometimes you forget that because when it comes to wire that money to close escrow, it's a different feeling, yeah. right? <laughs> and so um, I did that for, I'd say, a good dozen or more deals. And then um, we, we started coming across, you know, Will came on board and we're like, hey, we got to raise some more, you know, private capital. And for me, it's like owing money to people, you have a responsibility, a duty and all that. So um, I didn't want to do too much of it. It was just like, let's, you know, let's, Friends and family. So we started working with friends and family uh, that reached out to us that were more kind of, they wanted to invest with us. And then once we kind of tapped out those resources, you know, we started to, like, you know, do a little bit more of a process where we were actually searching for private money. And through coaching with Ryan and all that, we just learned that, hey, these are the proper documents that you need to have. This is kind of the expectation. This is kind of the returns and, and or what we typically pay people. So we just got a process around it and got more intentional about it because we realized, like, hey, we're kind of not, we're kind of capped out at a certain uh, amount of houses if we're not able to bring in more capital yeah um but yeah so we 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 love our private money uh, lenders we um well how are you get, adding like, how are you adding more private money what, what are some activities that you're doing to find more private money so social media is one big one uh, also the meetups that we host and people that are getting started uh, we provide also not only like uh, obviously providing them a return on what they make but then also we provide them access to the business yeah. the training to the team to all the transactions we're working on kind of like an open book policy because these are private lenders from different, you know, they're all different, right? Some of them want to get into flipping. Some of them just want to, you know, invest passively and let their money work for them. So 
Uh, we really provide yeah. full access to us, so then that way we can kind of help them grow. And then we're going in addition to um, the money side of things, of the, you know, interest and returns and all that. Yeah. But on that note, I mean, like, you know, it's something that we always talk about. And, and, you know, Alex and I are constantly finding out, like, what are the bigger rooms that we can put ourselves into that have these bigger players in them, right? Like, how can we get into that that ballroom or that, you know, gala or that soiree that's happening in town where, you know, there's going to be other big people in that room that just intrinsically, you know, you can end up doing business with, right? So yeah. I think it's, you know, we always say in, in business, we're looking for deals, we're looking for contractors. And, you know, the most important of all of those is we're looking for money, right? Yeah. Uh, so it never stops. And, and we're always constantly kind of looking for, for money. Uh, when we purchased our 18 unit here in Arizona, that was when we actually found out, like, how good we were at raising private capital. I mean, Alex and I were able to raise uh, close to a million dollars in less than a week to get this thing closed when, you know, our biggest raise before that had maybe been a couple hundred thousand in a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the other thing, too, you guys just mentioned, um, you know, uh, Ryan Pineda. So, uh, when I first met you guys, it was at a future flipper event. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about mentorship and the value there. Yeah. So I met Brandon, uh, I'm sorry, Ryan originally at the mastermind at Brandon Turner's event. And I was already a fan of his. Um, so I had already been following him and saw what he was up to, but then we got that personal connection couple like months later after the mastermind uh, with Brandon Turner, he calls me up and wanted me to bet out a deal in LA that he randomly got. And so I gave him the information he needed, ARV and all the comps, and then he um, presented me the option to buy the property, buy the property, and it fit our box. So we bought it, and uh, he made a huge wholesale fee. We made a huge rip on it too, and it just was like, all right, cool. Well, not only do we do this mastermind, but we kind of made some money together. So that that helped you know build that bond there, right? And then like another four or five months later, he launched his program. He started bringing the students, and you know, he told me that he wanted to help me get to the next level, and. You know, we, was, we had already made money together, and I, like I said, I already respected him because he was doing kind of something similar that I want to want to do, kind of really build the business. And so I joined this program about two years ago. Um, it really helped out with the leadership side, the structure mm -hmm. side, um, you know, little kind of nuances, right? Like the the project management we just talked about, all these little nuances that you learn along the way from other people, um, other courses or masterminds are super valuable. But you got to implement them. And then, um, you know, about a year and a half ago or a little bit more than a year and a half ago when Will joined, um, right, away, right, right away I put him in as kind of like uh, my partner with, you know, in, within, within the mastermind, within the course. And then so he started coming along with me into the masterminds and stuff. And, and we've gone to pretty much every, uh, every one, every quarter because of the connections we make, uh, the community that's being built out, um, and just kind of staying on that cutting edge of like what's really happening in, in our industry. It's been super valuable. So um, I don't know if we'll have anything to add to that. Yeah, no, but, yeah. I mean, like, I, I know, you know, Steve, you're a part of CG, you're a part, you pay mentors. Oh, yeah. Um, you are a coach, you are a mentor. So I think it goes both ways, right? Like, at, you know, as Alex and I mentor these, you know, people that are coming to the webinar, that are coming to the, the meetups, to the masterminds that we're hosting, you know, on the other side of that, we have to constantly be getting better and better as well. So, you know, when we identify something in our business and it's like, hey, Maybe we're not as good at sales. Well, you know, who do we go to? We go to Steve and we go, hey, you know what? We need to get our guys this Steve Trang coaching program because we need to improve our sales processes. Yeah. Um, you know, when we see social media is blowing up, we say, okay, who's the biggest social media coach out there? And we go and we, you know, uh, you know, hire on Ryan Magine because we want to be doing the same social content that everybody else is doing. And at some point you just have to decide, like, you're either going to figure it out yourself mm -hmm. and that takes away from the bandwidth of you doing your best activities. Like my best activity wasn't figuring out how to do sales. Yeah. You had already done that. So I didn't need to have to go through that whole 
journey of finding out how to do sales, all I needed to do was pay a couple thousand dollars, take a weekend of my time, and that just, you know, truncated you know, five, 10 years of your sales experience into a weekend for me. Yeah. Um, so again, again, it goes both ways. Like as you grow, you also have to continue to grow. So we're about to play this commercial, but before we do play this commercial, it's just kind of, you know, yeah, just warm them up for it. So how did coming to our event help you guys with your business? And I mean, we, we came to your sales training and I would say within, you know, arguably the next three months, we probably went from that four month dry stretch to like acquiring 11 to 15 deals in the next three or four months. Um, and that's over the course of, you know, one, one mentorship, one training program, one weekend, yeah. um, you know, of getting better. So 11 deals, your guys' margin is a little bit larger. So safe to say over half a million dollars worth. $5,000, you know, $10,000 turning into, into a half a million dollars. Like I, I would be at the bank first person in line every morning if I could make that investment. All right, perfect. So uh, we're going to go into the audience's questions. Before we that, we're going to take a quick commercial break. His sales training is unbelievable, right? There is other sales training in theory. Going through this stuff with how he breaks down his business is this is like invaluable um because there's no other way to get this type of like this type of access with someone who's such an open book about every little thing that is completely applicable to my business anyone who wants to bring their business to the next level anyone who wants to close 30 40 50 percent more of the deals uh i mean there's no one who wouldn't benefit from being better at sales Uh, I mean, anyone in real estate, anyone, I mean, anyone that has a, any entrepreneur that has a business, um, not all the information may be presented to you, but time management, um, knowing how to work with people, having sales skills, because I think we're all in sales and marketing, and it could pertain to anybody, honestly. I would have to say it's asking questions. That's the biggest thing. You don't want to give an answer right away. And if you're able to uh, answer their question with another question, and also that along the process, it's going to be very uncomfortable talking to the sellers, asking the questions that you need to and digging for pain. But that's going to come with experience. So um, if you're struggling, I think this is David that you need to come to to make sure that you take your business to the next level. His sales training is all right. So on Instagram, we got uh, Gav Bear, and he is newly married. So he wants to know: should he rent or should he try to buy a house and rent out the basement? Well, I'm a huge fan of the house hacking strategy, which is, if you don't know what it is, it's simply put: you buy a duplex, you live in one, you rent out the other, um, and you there's a whole bunch of versions of that. Mm -hmm. So I'm more of a fan of that if you if you can qualify for a low down payment loan. If I were to go back, I say this very much often, I would buy the biggest, most beautiful fourplex that I could afford on a low money down um, loan. FHA financing. At, in a you know, prime area of Southern California. That's what I would do first. If I would. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read about that in Robert Greene's book, uh, Multiple Streams of Income, right? A long, long time ago. Never executed it, but it was like before it was, you know, house hacking. You know, uh, these, these gurus are talking about it many, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, you have the same opinion? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, I, I'm personally buying a house hack. I'm not, you know, recently married, but I've been dating for, you know, eight or nine years now. And so I could see myself being in that shoes 
you know, in a couple of years down the line. And the main thing for me was before I got married, I wanted to make sure that I had a house, I had that stability. And so, um, you know, I, I would agree that if you get a house hack, then you can have somebody else helping you pay down that mortgage. And yeah. if you're a newly married couple, if you're, you know, newly expecting a child and you have those other expenses coming down the line, having that other person help you out with your, your mortgage expense goes a long way. And a quick, quick story on that. I actually house hacked my apartment and I didn't own a little bit, right? I did Airbnb on the other bedroom. It was a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment. And it helped me become an investor because I was not paying that additional 1200 rent. It was being paid by the Airbnb. And so I would be able to save more money and all that. So there's so many ways you can do that. And, yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it, it sounds more complicated than it really is, right? Because like when I was living in La Jolla, I was renting a three-bedroom apartment. And I got the master and I, my two buddies rented other two rooms, right? That's for more or all intents and purposes. What house hacking is just you're getting a mortgage versus you're splitting the lease uh, a few different ways. Yeah, yeah. And essentially, you guys were paying that guy's mortgage, but he just didn't even need to live in the house because you guys were paying it. So yeah, no, pretty much, right? So um, now the the challenge then is he's got newly married, and if his wife's okay with it, cool with it. That's that's great. Challenge is if you know we try to buy it today, a fourplex, and getting the wife to agree to living in a fourplex might be a challenge. But, and that's why I said the biggest because th there's a fourplex where there's tiny units and there's fourplex where it's almost like four houses on one lot. Yeah. Right. Or like a 4,000 square foot uh, fourplex that, you know, that's a good large. point. Right. Because so, I, I remember so people didn't think like of a multifamily and I'm next to my neighbor. No, there's no. some that are like you buy a duplex where it's a whole different lot. You know, they're over on that side. It's like two different houses. So. Yeah. I remember now thinking back in the Orange County, my wife's family. Yeah, they live in a duplex. And I was like, this is a duplex. This is not. These are two separate units. Yeah. These, like, yeah. This is not a duplex. But exactly. yeah, that's a really good point. Duplex sometimes has a connotation of like the shared wall. And like mm -hmm. Alex said, you could have a fourplex with four buildings, their own four garages just right. on the same parcel. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, then that would work. That's a great point. Uh, Mubarak uh, Hussein on YouTube wants to know are you guys doing virtual wholesaling? Not much virtual wholesaling because, you know, again, our model just, we, because we have expertise with the project management, you know, because we're able to get those project managers in different areas, we don't wholesale much. Most of the deals that come to us already fit our buy box, and our buy box is, is a flipping business. Mm -hmm. um, so by, you know, by virtue, we're not wholesaling much. Now, we do wholesale deals that we get under contract that don't fit our buy box, mm -hmm. but that might fit somebody else's buy box. But again, we're mostly targeting those deals that do fit our buy box. Um, so it's not that we're running a, a virtual wholesaling business, although we do some virtual wholesale. Just wholesale what you don't buy. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And I think that there's a distinction to like different business models. Which one, you know, are you going to run? And for us, it is more of what we're talking about, the flipping and then yep. keeping some and then wholesaling some as opposed to just pulling big lists and then just going really broad and mm -hmm. then just wholesaling whatever you get under contract. Kind of like different business models. So um, question for me is, has your guys' buy number changed? In the last couple of months, yes, yes, it has. How have you guys mod modified your buying um, calculations? Yeah, so we believe on certain areas that we're seeing based on we track inventory, we tr uh, religiously every mm -hmm. single day on what's happening across the markets that we're doing business in, and in some markets that we're seeing a, a much higher increase in inventory. We're say, for example, we had to buy at seventy percent of ARV. Now we're going to have to buy at sixty percent of ARV. And we're going to increase the, the rehab budget by more because of inflation. So really, like, we're buying now closer to 60, 55 to 65% of ARV. 
where before we would buy some deals up to maybe even 75 because it was a light rehab and you know it was going to be quick back to market so for us it is we have adjusted our numbers on the arv and on the rehab cost and so if it doesn't fit that box and we're okay with buying less property right now because we are seeing a transition and we have seen retail buyers falling out of escrow on several of our properties and asking for huge credits that we haven't seen you know in mm -hmm. the last you know before this correction that we're seeing so we're making adjustments based off what we're seeing on the sales side as well. And then with what you guys have going on, have you seen, um, I guess, um, ha have you like, gotten stuck with any, any purchases that, you know, like you guys were like kind of stretching to make it work or we, I mean, we, we definitely have some properties that we still have in our portfolio and, and, you know, we're working on exit strategies on those. Um, yeah. you know, we have a couple of properties that we have listed that, that maybe haven't gotten the, um, feedback that we would have thought they would. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that that's necessarily anything to do with our business model. I think it's just more of, you know, the economics of the world are shifting when inflation goes up. Um, you know, it's not just us that feel that it's the, the everyday buyer that feels that as well. And so their cost of living is going up. And that means that like, you know, Alex and I talked about this the other day, you know, it, it kind of, and we, we talked about this because David Green has a great book on investing in a recession. And, you know, Alex and I were talking, like, it seems like the market kind of truncates from both sides, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's going to be downward pressure at the lower price points and pressure at that upward price point, because that family that could barely afford a $1,500 mortgage before certainly can't afford a $1,900 mortgage now. Right. You know, so it's going to, it's going to really put pressure on both sides. Yeah. So we, we've definitely seen it. Um, but you know, we have multiple exit strategies on properties and then some of them, you know, instead of making what we thought we we're going to make, we're going to make less money. Um, or the ones that are just taking a little bit longer to sell than you know, a week, instead of taking a week uh, to sell, it's taking, you know, a month. So, you know, one more month of holding costs. So it's not like that we're going to lose money on these deals, but it is helping us now identify where the market is at in those particular areas. So then, we can now reflect if we are going to buy in that area again. Well, now we kind of know from the sales side what's happening. So track a lot of data, make sure that, you know, any buys going forward um, are kind of a recalibrated to where the market is at and going. And I'd almost say it gives us an advantage having inventory that we're currently selling because, you know, a newer investor right now might be like, well, where is the market going? And we actually have those data points yeah. right in front of us. So as we sell one, we know, hey, now we know this is where the market would come down to is right about here, right? Yeah, and when we use that often too with the wholesalers and or the um, you know agents, everybody that we're working with and negotiating deals with, where, where I tell my acquisitions guys like, hey, right now is a great time. You have a lot of leverage. You have a lot of facts in your favor, and so you know you. But you, you're going to need to make more offers. You're going to need to get into more opportunities to get the same amount of deals. So if you're not willing willing to work twice as hard to make like half the money, that's a bit of an extreme kind of statement. But if you take that approach in this market then you'll get the better discounted deals. And um, that's what we need right now. You need to be ultra conservative if you're flipping. And that's what we're doing. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Gary Satarian on YouTube, what is an example of a typical JV corporate structure? Uh, so if you are doing a deal with someone else, you partner up on a deal because you have one guy who took it under his title. Mm -hmm. So if you do it correctly today, do you have two different LLCs splitting the expenses and splitting the equity? How would you do it today? Well, yeah, the joint ventures that we do now, typically there'll still be one person on title, but then we'll have a very specific, and I mean very specific joint venture agreement that's notarized. Um, so then, you know, it's it's something that's specific. Like, hey, if our goal is to flip this primarily. We'll consider wholetailing it. And if worst case scenario, we have to hold it, this is how it's going to work out. So I think we're just very specific in our language. And then we get, you know, those documents. 
Now, um, we do have another uh, structure where we're just kind of on the same LLC. Um, that one isn't as common because if it's just like one deal off, it, it's, you know, we'd rather just have, the, you know, we don't want to complicate things sometimes with the hard money lenders and everything. So um, we try to keep it more simple on that. Like my Hawaii house, for example, one of the houses there is a joint venture and my partner's on title, but we have a very, very kind of specific joint venture agreement um, along with, you know, some other stuff that, you know, that is guaranteeing that like I'm going to get my share of that property. Um, so I think you just, uh, you need to have all that kind of dialed in. If you're going to do a joint venture, just make, make sure that everything's very specific because you're dealing with real estate. So, you know, what's going to happen if someone wants to keep it or what's going to happen if you don't get your price, you, you have to hold it. So th those things need to be included inside of your agreement. I, I believe are very important. Yeah. So that's really smart. Um, I've never done any of those things, but like, it's really smart. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll jump on that too. You know, I think with the joint venture side of things, right? Like Alex and I talk about the roles and goals for us with our business. Well, this is somebody that's joining into your business for this right. particular project. So you really want to lay out what are your roles? What are your goals? Is your goal to get two or three, you know, joint ventures under your belt so that you can now go to a hard money lender and say, hey, look, I've, I've done deals. Mm -hmm. Well, great. Then if that's your goal, then maybe we're going to take some other goals on our end and say, well, our goal is to make more profit on this deal than if you were to, you know, take a 50-50 split with us. Yeah. yeah. And, you know? and it's helpful, too, because recently I, I think of this, Deal that we're doing right now in Maui, this house that we're flipping there, um, I originally it was gonna be a joint venture, and we had a, a you know super specific joint venture agreement. But at the eleventh hour, he had some issues with you know the other partner had some issues with um, their family and whatnot, and he has to be bought out. Um, and you know when I looked at the numbers, I'm like okay, well he offered me a fair buyout of a thirty thousand dollar basically fee that he was gonna take, and, but us having a very specific joint venture agreement allowed that conversation and that to all turn out well because. Um, his role was going to be project management. And he's saying, well, I can't fly to Hawaii no more. I'm like, well, if that was your role in this, you know, joint venture agreement, now you can't do your part of your role. You bought the deal and you were going to project management. I was going to fund everything. Now you're not doing your part of it. So now we have to kind of pivot. And then that's when he was, well, that's when we discussed, you know, okay, what do you want a fair buyout then? And he, you know, we offered, he offered me 30 and I, I took it. Cause then I you know, saw more upside on, on doing that. And it was very fair. So, but having that, specifically laid out allowed us to say okay well you're not going to do that anymore i'm not going to do that so let's have a conversation then what are we going to do from here because we were at the closing table yeah that's it's really smart uh on instagram does anyone uh does anybody have an acquisitions position in honolulu or yeah, honolulu oahu are you guys hiring anybody over there we're not currently looking for acquisitions people but send me a dm i do know several investors that um you know are on oahu that potentially might be a better fit Oh. Without a doubt, I, you know, I know a couple that we could think of that, that are looking to scale their businesses yes. out there. And, you know, if you're the good. right fit, it would work. Yeah, and how good they are. Uh, I've heard, and this is just totally like hearsay, right? Like I haven't done any due diligence on this. I've heard that it's more challenging in Hawaii because they, they prefer to sell to their fellow Hawaiians. So have you guys ran into that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's definitely, it, there's those challenges that when you're dealing with, you know, more local uh, Hawaiians and, I mean, it's a difficult situation. It really is because if you look into the history of things, you know, it's you'll you'll understand why they mm -hmm. feel certain ways. But mm -hmm. if you're not local, then um, not only when it comes to business, but in other ways too, um, you know, visiting locations, all that. So you feel that kind of uh, like a vibe of you're not you're not as welcome. And and people think of Hawaii, they think of Aloha, they think of just paradise and whatnot. But we all think of a paradise. We go there, but they, imagine all the people there that had people just come in and off their island constantly. And so. I kind of get both sides, but it, I can't say that it's, it's been easy to deal with like that because I, I'm trying to make the island better, right? Like I, we we say that 
we're making the world better one house at a time. But if they're 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 unhappy that we're even owning property to begin with, then I can't help that, you know. So right. yeah, there definitely is some of that that you 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 know doing business. It's a unique uh, state to do business in. But, but there is a ton of appreciation. So like our deals have appreciated crazy. So it, it just every market's different and it's challenges and it's opportunities. Um, I think of like you're saying, that's what you see on pictures, and then that's like when you live there, right? Because like visiting there is like oh like there's a lot more to what you just see on TV. Yeah. And it's kind of like social media, right? Like on social media, you only see the best, yep. right? When you you don't see the ugly parts of Hawaii on TV. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, there there's a it's it's a fantastic um, location, fantastic market. Um, but yeah, doing volume there's like not easy, and it's better just to kind of I think for us just be very selective on the deals we do there because also the labor is extremely difficult mm -hmm. and material sourcing. So there's all those additional challenges when you're actually rehabbing as well. Uh, what's the uh, difference in cost of materials over there versus here well we used to run like about 50 dollars per square foot in southern california and in hawaii we noticed that it was almost double that almost double uh, so it's it really is crazy i'm like what like the thousand square foot house is gonna cost like you know like 150,000 to rehab when la that would be 70 75 so it's like yeah. it's just, and it's like the same kind of size house it's just it's just a labor cost or insane and um you know just and material we, cost we've too. actually had to fly yeah. Cruise in from the, you know the mainland from Southern California and other parts of, of of you know of the United States to help us rehab properties in Hawaii and it's common because like the guys that are good are very busy There'll or be they're two too good expensive. electricians on island and they're both booked out for <laughs> yeah. eight months and you're like okay so I can't get an electrician at my house then for eight months well that's not gonna work yeah, yeah. yeah. so a bunch <laughs> of additional nuances with that and uh, we just have to make it work you got to figure it out yep um. Gary wants to know, have you ever done any nighttime manta ray diving in Hawaii? No, I haven't. I've heard of that on the big island, but I have not. Um, yeah, it's a little scary being in the water at night. <laughs> um, so property warehouse and YouTube, for your flips, are you hiring GCs or are you bringing them on staff payroll? No, we typically have the project manager and they uh, sub it out. And they, you know, they work with all, you know, so they're acting kind of as our GC. Uh, and Brian DeVilla wants to know about garage grinding. What is that? Garage grinding. What's up, Brian? I don't know what that is. He's saying, ask Alex about his days in the garage grinding. Oh, okay, okay. He's mentioning that, and we we talked about this a little bit. This podcast. I, I bought what I it was my best deal up to date. Now I've done better deals than that. But I bought this house subject to, um, I took over the mortgage. It was creative finance deal, and then I did a whole office set up in my garage. It was a huge garage, and it was already kind of set up as like storage. So I built this like kick butt office um, that, I mean, it really felt like it was an actual office. It, nobody knew it was my garage. I started my, like, my Instagram and everything from there. Later on when I showed it, everybody was like, oh my God, like you were like grinding in your office in your, in your garage? We didn't even know this. So I think that's what he's mentioning it. But it was great because I did Airbnb on the two bedrooms and the, it was a four bedroom, two bath house. It was just me and my girlfriend at the time were living there. So we'd be in the back part of the house and then we Airbnb the front. So we cut that deal up so many different ways. And then I held on to it for almost a year and a half and sold it for like almost no like taxes. So like it made like six wait, figures wait, on wait. it. But all that kind of started a lot of my, my company and my start in, in social media and some of the stuff there in that garage. That's funny. <laughs> um, and then do you ever joint venture with the GCs uh, for, that you're contracting out? So we've thought about that before. And I think, um, you know, when you get to a certain point in business, like we're doing the project manager model right now, right? Where we have project managers that handle the scope of work and handle, you know, the subcontracting on all those deals. But at a certain point, um, you know, 
and this comes back to our, our overarching theme of roles and goals, right? So if a contractor were to approach us and say, hey, my goal is to help you guys grow your business from doing 25 flips this year to doing 50 flips next year, and my role in doing that would be to you know speed up your guys' construction timelines, help it so that you guys don't have any of those construction issues, pretty much mitigate any issues you would have on the construction side. All you guys would need to do now is worry about acquiring and funding these, and that would eliminate that you're looking for deals, contractors, and money. You know, so if, if somebody were to approach and say, hey, I can eliminate one of those things, you'll never have to look for that again, then that would be something that, that we've talked about would be of interest. Yeah, um, I, we've looked into it, but it hasn't turned out yet. I know other investors that have done it and partnered up with their GCs, but we haven't. Uh, well, what I do want to say, though, about like, partnering up with people, um, because sometimes people will approach you with the partnership, but it's really favored in their side, yep. right? I think one big thing for us is constantly having this mindset of like, it has to be a win-win or like we're not doing the deal. And that mm -hmm. has to do with buying a property that has to do with partner someone, something specifically, because I've had people offer me money to lend it, but then they want, you know, they're going to lend 50 grand and they want half the deal. It's like, I'm sorry, dude, like that's not going to work out. But if you're going to, you know, fund the whole deal and put up a quarter million dollars and we have yeah, a discussion, talk, yeah. uh, but you know, so sometimes you'll get offered in business and in this business, like bad deals. So just make sure that you're analyzing it is kind of a true win-win, whatever that context might be. Yeah. Uh, Gary's follow-up question on YouTube is any advice for any up-and-coming acquisitions people? What should they focus on? One acquisition strategy. Uh, you know, what should, like, or a, a, any advice for anyone that's in acquisitions, what should they be focusing on? One acquisition strategy. Don't do okay. what I did and, and try to do a little bit of texting, a little bit of driving for dollars, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Like just focus on one thing. Like Alex said, if you just sit down and you grind and you get on the phone and you make six hours worth of phone calls and you do that for a couple of days in a row, you're going to be much better than you were the first day. Um, if you spend, you know, 30 minutes doing some text, 30 minutes doing some driving for dollars, you're just never going to get to that A plus level on one of those marketing strategies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say that acquisitions that you need to focus heavily right now, understanding like the, just the perception of the market and then also the real data. Because those two things will help you negotiate deals is like, hey, I understand this is where things are at, but hey, this data says this. But just having ammunition in your conversations, I think is extremely important um, because people are like, oh, yeah, the market's kind of there. But if you talk to somebody about the market and you're not giving them actual real numbers or you're not actually disclosing to them like, hey, this is what we're seeing, then um, it just you're just you're missing an opportunity to, you know, to potentially, like you say, encounter, you know, uncover pain. Um, because there's going to be a lot of pain right now in this market and a lot of opportunities in that for people to help, you know, for you to help homeowners and to, you know, put good deals together. But and I think you really got to look deeply right now, your skill set, and then, you know, um, find out like what's really happening in the market. And I, I, I are my team with like real numbers on what's happening. So um, you can justify these kind of low offers that we're having to submit right now that um, people are maybe thinking they're a little bit crazy, but that's what we're seeing. So that's um, yeah. So another question from Gary. Um, He's put this out for me, but I want to start with you guys first. Uh, a deal of a lifetime comes around once a week. Do you guys find this to be true? I do not. I think that a deal of a lifetime comes around maybe every month at most or every quarter. I, I yeah. don't think. I don't Every quarter. I would say. I would agree on the deal of a lifetime. However, every day there's a deal. You know, like Alex and I talk about this. Every day when you wake up, if you wake up with the notion that there's a deal out there. I'm going to go find that deal. There's no set script or set, you know, rule book that says, hey, because Steve's been doing it this long, 
he's going to get that deal. Like, you know, there's a deal out there. Now, that might not be the life-changing deal mm -hmm. that comes to Steve's lap, but there's a deal out there every day that you can go get, and that deal could change your life. What yeah. do you think, Steve? So for me, I think maybe not once a week, but I believe it's once a month. I mean, I get these things that are offered to me uh, on a fairly regular basis. Like, mm -hmm. these are opportunities like a year ago, like I was like, you know, giving up an arm and a leg for it. And today is like, it doesn't, I can't do it right now. Yeah. Right? Like, just don't have the capacity. So I think the big thing is the capacity, the ability to do it, right? Like, if I bring a deal to you right now that's, I don't know, uh, fire damage, crazy deeds, right? Like, 20 errors. Like, today, like, I can't do this deal. I don't have the resources, but mm -hmm. if you had the resources, right? If you knew how to find all those errors, if you knew how to negotiate uh, all those different situations, you had to deal with the city, with the fire, uh, figuring out the insurance situation. Like, if you had all the skill sets, then that's an easy deal. Yep. Yeah. But yeah. for us, or at least for me, it's like, I don't know. Yeah. That's not I a deal for me. I find 20 years right now. I'd rather, rather not. Yeah. Exactly. Because most great deals are created, they're put together. And one of my best deals in Hawaii was created because of all the experience I had. And I was able right. to negotiate with that savvy seller mm -hmm. and his lawyer. And I was able to present a seller financing option that I, in the past, I wouldn't have known how to present. Right. Um, and I was able to figure out all these little things. But when you're in the game long enough, you're more likely to hit a home run. Yeah. That's why I look at it too. It's like, you're not going to hit a home run maybe every, unless you're like a home run hitter. But let's just give an yeah. example. Like, if you're in the game long enough, you'll get a home run. And yeah. and the point is, though, you got to stay in the game. Yeah. 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 You have to have the capacity, the the resources, the wherewithal. There's a lot of different pieces. And then if that's the case, then it will. And it might just be as a deal for of a lifetime for other people, but maybe not for us anymore. Yeah. Correct. That's true. Um, all right. Um, at what point do you change your strategy from flipping to holding and why? That's Roger Villa on Instagram. Great question. Uh, we get to ask a lot. Um, so for us, is we're building a flipping company, but we're keeping specific assets, and then we're using that you know, profit to buy longer-term ass assets. So, for example, uh, I didn't own any real rentals until the last couple of years. I probably could have owned a couple along the way, but then it would have limited my growth on the, you know, the company and the team and, and, and building a real business, right? So I think you need to make a decision, uh, you know, and, and it's individual for everybody, right? Like, okay, are you going to be an investor? Are you building a company? Like, what's your goal? So people would ask me, like, oh, why don't you own more rentals? Why aren't you keeping more? And, um, you know, my response would be, like, well, right now I'm, I'm playing the long game. I want to build this thing up, and then I'll be able to buy more, you know, assets. And now I have an 18-unit uh, along with, you know, another five or so rentals that we have. And now, you know, it, but that's happened really in the last, like, 18 months. So people are really trying to own and have all this passive income really early on. And I think that's kind of a mistake sometimes. Unless, I mean, maybe you're just you're working a really good, great nine to five. You're making a lot of money and you could acquire a rental every year or two years. That's a different model than what I'm running. So I think you have to pay attention to what's your long-term goals and then how that fits into the business model you're doing in this real estate investing space and not get hung up on, oh, this person has this many doors and I don't have that many doors because, you know, you could easily fall into that game. A really easy trap to fall into. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I love it, right? Like, decide what you want. Do you want to be the guy that has doors? Do you want to be the guy that has the income? Do you want to be the guy that has the passive income? Like, what investing strategy is it you're looking for? You know, like you said, Alex, like, you passed on a lot of opportunities that we could have kept over the year or two. But on the flip side, we bought 18 doors in one hit. You know, so if we would have held 18 single families along the way, that would have severely limited our growth. And we ended up getting 18 rent checks on the first of the month. Anyway, yep. it just took a little bit. Of and a there are some assets, to too, that you find across or some properties are like, hey, this is a great Airbnb or this is a great 
hold, uh, long-term yeah. hold. This is that we like to hold properties that's built after 1990s in the Antelope Valley because we just found like those require a lot less maintenance. They get rented out, you know, um, a lot easier. And we like that asset to hold on to that. So I think that's part of you identifying that too for your buy box and hold box. Yeah. Uh, so uh, starting with Will, what is your why? Yeah, I mean, I, I think ultimately the why, right? It, it really kind of fuels me, right? So my why happens to be my family, right? I grew up down in San Diego, um, single mom, and you know, just watching what my mom did for me and for my twin brother uh, really motivated me to say, you know what, hey, I want to be uh, a pillar in my family. I want to be a rock in my family that my family can depend on, that can be there uh, for not just my my children, but for my parents, grandparents, and you know, generations to come. So. Um, you know, when I get up every day and I, I go to battle and I get to the grind, um, the number one thing on my family or on my, on my mind is, is how do I put my family in the best position to, to move forward? Awesome answer. Uh, so my big why is freedom. It's, uh, I, I'm a big fan of designing the life of your dreams and then going out there and implementing that. And to some degree, I've kind of done that. So being able to spend, uh, priceless moments with my family, like in Hawaii or, or you know, doing some type of retreat or something with my team, or being able to fly one of my team members that's you know done a special job to Hawaii or to Mexico, um, and just having that um, ability to to choose like what I do with my time and who I spend my time with, and what I do with all that is a big big reason, what the big motivating factor for me. Um, and right alongside that is my family, my mom and dad. Uh, they work, you know, they're immigrants, you know, from Mexico. They came here. They allowed me to have an amazing opportunity to you know be here so i'm very grateful for that so um you know taking care of them is is extremely important so i'd say just having the freedom and the choices that uh having more resources and whether that passive income or more active income or what real estate provides is something that is my big why is that freedom and then you know, my family my mom and dad and you know being closer to my brothers what's your biggest struggle right now right now is i think this 18 unit has taken up a good amount of capital along with um you know kind of the additional where were we having seven of the of the vacancies that we have of the 18 units so it's a value add play so i think um just that um, a large amount of capital investment we've had in that one has also um put a little bit of less liquidity in for some of the other projects we have going so i think um you know on one side it is kind of a challenge on the other side we operate much more resourcefully right where i think when things are all constantly on the upside we tend to be a little bit more wasteful or maybe not looking at all the you know, that maybe we're, we're, we don't need this additional charge of this and that. So I think it was really right now, um, just the capital allocation that is, is, is right now being a little bit of a challenge. But, um, you know, we have four properties that we're right about to sell. And so that the challenge is constantly changed. Like in uh, three weeks from now, that probably won't be the same answer. Yeah. <laughs> but right now, I'd say that. No, and I love that, right? Like, I, I think the challenges will consistently change. So if you had asked us this question, you know, a couple months ago, it would have been completely different than it is now. And I think, like Alex said, in, in the future, that'll probably shift as well. Um, but echoing what Alex said, I think the biggest struggle or challenge that we're having right now is, again, we're doing business in multiple states. You know, Alex is traveling. I'm traveling. We're doing virtual stuff. Um, so really taking a step back and, and making sure that the team is all structured and going in that same goal and knows which way the goal is because we've had the goal you know, kind of shift like, hey, we're acquiring properties. Now we're looking at this multifamily. So making sure that everybody still knows the alignment. They say, you know, when an airplane goes a degree off course, it can get that plane over, you know, 80 to 100 miles off its destination. And so 
Um, you know, when you see the the market shift, when you see these other out you know outlying sources come in to your main business, it's it's do we want to go that far off a of business, and how can we quickly realign? Yeah. Um, how will you know when you're successful? Love that one. That's a great question. Um, I will know personally when I'm successful when I do not have to work, but I can make the choice to work. Right. So when I know, hey. You know, it's done. Like I, I could, I could walk off into the sunset right now. But I would find success being in the position to say that I could do that, but that I still want more. I would say I feel successful now because of some of the impact I made on other people in our tribe and people that we've helped get their first deal. And you know, we don't have a formal coaching or mentor, you know, a paid coaching or mentorship program. Um, but I really derive a lot of satisfaction pushing people to get their first deal or to grow their, you know, their past that first deal. Because I remember what it was when I first started and then what I've been able to kind of do in these five years, I feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people could do. So um, mm -hmm. I, I feel successful now. There's still a lot of goals that I have. Um, but the reason I say that I feel successful now is because I get the DMs. You know, I get people that, you know, that it makes my day. We're like, hey, you know, I've been watching for you know a year and then I started to make some offers or I did this and, Fill in whatever that is, and getting those messages are, are, are very fulfilling because you've uh, made an impact or you, you're able to influence other people to improve their life. And for me, that that's super valuable because just trying to pay it forward, especially because I feel like overall it was very difficult for me to get this information. And, and so I'm almost like, oh, I, I got this secret, so I want to let it all go and give everybody a chance to also you know, improve their life through real estate investing. So, yeah. Uh, I can see that means a lot to you. Was there a time where you were having a hard time getting that information from from other people? Yeah, like when I my path along the way of working for other investors and just this constant feeling like, hey, they're just like, you know, they would like kind of lie to me sometimes like about what they spent on rehab or they wouldn't want me to learn something specifically. And it was always kind of like this feeling of like, man, you guys are just kind of using me. And I didn't like that. And I don't want anybody to ever work with me to feel like that, like I'm just, you know, kind of using them to, get, you know, increase my wealth or something, right? It's yeah. like... And so, yeah, that's, I'm passionate about that because I, I feel like this business also was like that good old, you know, the good old boys club. Oh, yeah. Where, yeah. where right? It was a really long people time. People had the information. And now with the internet and, you know, all the other stuff that's happening, there's a lot more information out there. Yeah. So I think that that's why I'm passionate about it because I felt like along the, my path that, like, I was like the underdog. Like, people didn't really want me to come up. People didn't want to give me all the information. But I was constantly in search. I was constantly learning. And I've always put the learning above the money. And now, like, now I don't have to worry that much about that side of things because of how much I learned. And then now I'm just sharing that. So that's awesome. Take action. Awesome. What is your superpower? I thought about this because I, I know, I knew that you're probably going to ask this question, but I think creating connections is something that um, I'm, I'm great at the genuine ones. Uh, I think people resonate with um, the way I kind of approach uh, the business. And so I think building connections has been one of my superpowers. Yeah. And I'll echo that. I mean, uh, you know, probably my superpower would be bringing life and energy into the room, right? Being in, being in that room with people and being able to create, you know, influences, create introductions, create business deals, create team members through your energy and your activity. Yeah. And I've definitely experienced that, right? Being, being around you. Uh, what is the greatest lesson you have learned? Uh, from real estate? In general. In general, man, the biggest lesson I have learned is to do on to others as you would want to have done on to you. Um, you know, a lot of times in business, you'll find that opportunity, like Alex said, where, you know, you can kind of, you know, hold somebody else back. And, you know, like he said, he left those opportunities because that wasn't how he would have wanted to have been treated. Right. 
Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think that that's the golden rule for a reason, right? And um, if you treat people a certain way, you'll just happen to notice that that kind of reciprocates back to you. You yeah. know, if, if you're really happy with everybody, you'll just start to notice like, oh, like everybody's such in a, you know, a happy mood. If you notice like, man, I really want to drive a red Ferrari, you know, you're going to drive around and you're like, dude, I've seen five red Ferraris today. Yeah. You know, because you're putting that out there. And so if you put out quality interactions, quality uh, communications and quality, you know, creations of, of relationships with people, I think that will ultimately lead you to success. So if you do on to other people how you would want to have done to you, I think that's the, the biggest lesson that I can take uh, out of life so far today. Yeah, I think for me, the variation of that, right? When someone's like, man, like everyone's a jerk. It's like, uh, might be a reason you for that. How <laughs> <laughs> um, about you, Alex? That's a great question. I think what comes to mind is that change, that you have the power to change not only yourself, but your environment. And mm -hmm. I think too many people settle for the life that they've been given or the cards or, you know, input, whatever challenge that you have. And they just use that as an excuse uh, to not take action. Mm -hmm. And I think um, that my life has changed because I was very purposeful of where I wanted to go. And mm -hmm. I was always willing to put in the work. So I think it comes down to you to just taking that mindset of like, I can change, I can improve, I can do better, I can do this. And yep. then, um, you know, your environment will slowly change because your actions will change. So I think for me, that's very important because if I'm next year the same person I am right now, Steve, then I've completely failed. Yeah. Now, even if I'm the same person next month than I am right now, I think I've failed. So I'm constantly looking up how I can get better because I know that I have faults. I know that I, I have a lot of things that I can, you know, get better at. And so um, I think that's very important to recognize, like, where are the changes in your life that you can implement right now um, that make those those improvements and and then get you to where you want to go so changes it's a lot of pressure on yourself for personal development yeah uh, i'll check in with you next month and i expect a, a bigger better version of you all right, all right. i want an essay <laughs> i want a five paragraph essay on, on what where you've grown yeah uh what was your what has been your favorite best or most interesting failure failure mm -hmm. i would say for, in some regards like the hawaii um you know operation as a whole i feel like um you know we haven't quite hit where we wanted to go when we originally you know got there and, and the deals that we did there um but it's just been such a magical experience to, to to live in Hawaii, to enjoy the the beautiful place that it is, get to know the vibe and areas. So, um, I think on the business side, we've kind of failed in some ways. Um, even though we got some great deals and we haven't lost any money, I can't say that, that we failed. Failed. But what I wanted to do, and compared to actually what happened, um, I think it was a very interesting but fun uh, failure that um, ultimately grew all of us. And you know, we have property that if you'd like to go to Maui. Let me know, Steve. I got you. I mean, I have my eye on that Clint Eastwood house. You know what I'm talking about? Mm, it sounds familiar. Did uh, they so, list it recently? Uh, no, it's not listed. It's just like, it's just out by itself. It's like far out in the water, right? I mean, it's just, uh, I can't remember what hotel it was. like Princess, one of those five-star hotels in Maui, right? For our 10-year uh -huh. anniversary. And it's like this one house that's just out by itself, surrounded by nothing but beach in all directions. I don't know where that's at. Wow, I yeah. can't believe that. So I'm that's if I could figure out what you're saying. That's well, my biggest failure is not knowing where that house is because <laughs> we could get that thing under contract. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll look at it in a couple of weeks when yeah, we go to Maui. Right. Uh, so what, what about you, Will? Favorite, uh, best, or most interesting failure? Yeah, favorite failure for me was, um, you know, I actually, before I got started in the Los Angeles Chargers and the NFL job I have, and before I, I got started with real estate, um, I was actually a nightlife uh, VIP host, a nightlife promoter. And... Um, 
I'll say probably one of my biggest failures was my exit from the last nightclub I worked at. I, um, you know, had a great relationship with this, this uh, nightclub. And when my father had a heart attack, and he's per perfectly fine now, so everything is, you know, good and, and recovered. But when he had a heart attack, the relationship I had with that nightclub deteriorated, and it deteriorated very quickly. Um, and I think um, that was ultimately one of my biggest failures was not knowing or not being able to see how to stop that from happening. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn from it? Um, well, I learned, obviously, you know, like what Alex said, is that sometimes people don't have your best intentions at their heart, mm -hmm. right? Sometimes there are people that are looking out for themselves first and you second. Um, and so that provided me the opportunity to say, you know, hey, where this might have felt super secure, it really wasn't, right? Because yeah. the true cards were played and, and the security was not there. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people maybe listening to this podcast that think they have a safe job mm -hmm. and uh, might need to hear that message. Yeah. Uh, what is uh, What book have you gifted more than any other, Will? Man, biggest uh, book for me, um, probably going to be Split the Difference. Um, you know, when you talk about a sales book, the guy's an FBI negotiator and... When I read Split the Difference, it really set my sales career in a different trajectory. It was, hey, you're not pushing a product, but you're more asking questions to find a solution. And if the solution happens to be your product, then you have a win-win situation there. And if it is not your product, then that's not a bad thing either. Yep. That just means, hey, you guys aren't doing business together. Um, and, and you can amicably say, hey, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your pitch. This wasn't for me. Let's go different ways. So let me shoot a hypothetical at you. Yeah. All right. So let's just say I convince Chris Voss to do an event with me, right? Day one, I talk about sales. Day two, he talks about negotiations. What's a reasonable price to charge for that? Reasonable would be, I mean, I now, think. So let me restate that. Maximum price. Because yeah, okay, <laughs> I was going to say reasonable and, and what it's worth are two different things there, right? Like reasonable would be anything you know, over 50,000, I would pay because again, that's two days, back to back days with arguably one of the better sales trainers and arguably one of the better negotiators in the country, right? Um, so, you know, Alex and I have, uh, I think, what do we spend on, on coaching and mentorship this year? Close to $50,000. I mean, at least 40, yeah, yeah at least $40,000. So, I mean, like, I think somewhere in between, you know, five to $25,000 is, is, you know, going to be pretty fair. And I, I would say it would really depend on how big the room is, right? Is it, yeah. 25 people that have that one-on-one -on -one time. And if I do that, I'm going to shoot for at least 100 people. Yeah, or exactly. And even if it's 100 people, right? I yeah. mean, like 100 people, you're going to have a one-on-one -on -one connection with Steve. You're going to have a one-on-one -on -one connection with Voss. You're going to have a one-on-one -on -one connection with four to five, 10, 15 other people in that room. Like, what is what are those connections worth? Yeah. So it's good to know because I just found out that I'm super connected with a guy that's friends with him. There so. you go. That's a fantastic book. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Uh, my uh, most gifted book would be the book I mentioned earlier, which is Mastery by Robert Greene. Um, I read it, perhaps it was at that pivotal point where I was just, you know, this when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I already liked some of his other writing, but what it did for me was it got me into this mindset of, you know, you have to really, if, to become a master of something and be the, one of the greats, you know, ever, there's these past there that other people have already done and what I liked about the book so much was that it gave examples of previous masters like you know um, Leonardo da Vinci and then gave examples of modern day 
masters. Okay. There was this other jet fighter guy that was in there, and um, uh, um, some lady that designed um, cattle equipment for uh, for cattle and other types of breeding, uh, you know, livestock and whatnot. But it was just so interesting that they all had like little different paths, but there was something kind of in common that they, you know, that they all did. Um, and and just I approached mentors differently after that. I approached like the the grind differently after that because I listened to the book and I also read it, and uh, it's just very deep. It's a very meaty book, mm-hmm. uh, and not easy to just like read. Like you know, some books are easier to read than others. Yeah, but Robert goes very, and he goes in detail with a lot of stuff, and a lot of his books are written off of historical figures and data and things like that. So he really does his research. And so that that book was just like one of my favorite books. I recommend to a lot of people because even if you're not trying to become a master real estate investor, like it gives you the perspective. Like, what can you go out there and be like one yeah, of the best in the world? At okay. I'm gonna check that out because you know, 48 Laws of Power, very interesting book. And there's some things in there that maybe best people don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I will have to definitely check out that. Yeah, book. Yeah, it's different it's because 48 Laws of Power. I think gets a lot of flack because the, the, some of the laws conflict with each other and kind of like almost like manipulation and things like that right um but mastery is different all right i think yeah yeah so check it out uh question from gary tatarian so he's asking this for me but i'd love to hear it from you guys so how often do you celebrate how often do you celebrate your wins truthfully another one of my failures i don't celebrate wins enough you know uh my team got me a trophy sitting over there uh, to, to celebrate you know our, our our year so far but i don't celebrate my wins enough and it's Sadly, one of the things I, I I still do need to actively work on. So, for you, how often are you celebrating your wins? Well, I kind of I'm kind of spoiled in that regard that I kind of designed my life in a way where I get to do cool stuff pretty often, and mm-hmm. I kind of plug it into my schedule. I, actually, I plug it in every week on Sundays, like two or three three cool things that I want to do for myself, and that could be going on a hike in Hollywood mm-hmm. Hills. That could be going for a snorkel, you know, in Maui if, if I'm there. That could be going to visit my aunt if I'm in Mexico. That's doing cool things. That's different, right? But like, how often are you celebrating like wins, whether team victories, accomplishments? I'd what? say we we do that at least once a quarter because, like, for example, one of our things is um, if you once you get your first acquisition with us, if you're in the acquisitions department, then we'll we'll fly you to Maui and have you know like, a team trip there. So um, we we do it quite often. I'd say we do it at least every quarter. I have to work for you good for a week. Yeah. Oh. Come bring us that deal. We'll, we'll, we'll fly you out to Hawaii. Um, I'll echo what Alex said. I mean, for our acquisitions team, um, we're constantly doing the the Maui trips and, and celebrations. But um, for example, like, you know, on our weekly team meeting uh, this this week, we probably spent about 30 minutes of the meeting just going over how big of a team win our recent meetup was. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't Alex and I. It, we, we basically both showed up. You know, mm-hmm. we got there a couple, you know, an hour before the event started. But it was the team, everybody behind there. And so we spent a good half hour of our entire, you know, all hands on, all staff, you know, level 10 meeting, just kind of going over how cool of a win that was. And, you know, obviously there's bonuses that we'll give out to some of our virtual team members that can't, you know, be a part of those celebrations in person. Um, But but celebrating the team is very important for us because, you know, again, we want to work with A-plus players. And what we found is that people that are A-plus players want to be celebrated in public and in private, yeah. right? Like that's just something that, that they want, right? Yeah, and recognition is extremely important because for some people that's almost as important as compensation. As financial gain. Yeah, yeah. because uh, if you're not going to pay someone well, like for example, if you have somebody that's interning for you or somebody's just getting started, they're probably not going to make a ton of money. So if they do a great job of stuff, you should be recognizing them because 
um, they're not getting the other side of things, right? right. But, you know, and I also look at the other flip side of that, where like, hey, if you're getting paid extremely well, then maybe you don't need as much recognition because you're getting the paycheck too. Right. But now we're all wired a little bit different, and I think that for me, recognition is important. And once again, I probably would have stayed at the company longer if I would have gotten just a better, a little bit better compensation package and more recognition. Yeah, that was absolutely but, true. Uh, so I want you guys to think about what you want to leave the listeners with. Uh, while I make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, guys, if you guys got value today, please like, subscribe, share, comment, leave a five-star review on iTunes. Uh, and then we do have our sales disruptors coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, Will and Alex got a chance to check it out and, you know, got half a million dollars worth of value. So, you know, if, the, if you guys are willing to invest in yourselves, check that out. Uh, we got part in the disruption tomorrow and we got certainty talks on Friday. And next week, we got Forrest Blackburn who helped... Um, Tarek built his wholesaling business, right? So if you want to learn from the guy that helped Tarek build his wholesaling business, check out check us out next week. All right. So last thoughts, I'll start with uh, Will. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I had spoken about this at our meetup that we had, uh, you know, last week in Los Angeles. But um, the one big takeaway I would give is, you know, not giving up when you're three feet away from gold, right? Like, you know, we had it in our business, right? We hit that four months. It was, hey, man, like, is this working? Is it working? And if we would have given up right there, like, would we be here today? Yeah. Right. You know, and it's, 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 you're three feet from gold. So my biggest piece of advice to anybody listening in today would be, you know, if you are putting in the grind, putting in the work, don't stop. You know, give it that extra day. Give it that extra call. The power of that one extra call, the power of that one extra connection, the power of that one extra meetup, um, you know, it really can create alignment and, and growth for you that you'd never understand if you give up okay so one big thing for me is is taking action right uh for a little more than four years ago steve i was on the other side of that camera watching you interview amazing people now i'm on stage here actually being interviewed and why is that it's because i took daily action um you know i became obsessed about being great at something um you know and you i'm not talking about money i'm talking about being great at something and so to do that you have to put in your reps you have to go out there and take steps and you're going to go through adversity. But the thing is, if you're clear about where you want to go, it'll help you deal with that adversity. And we live in an incredible country where you have all the opportunity in the world. So take advantage of it. Don't squander, you know, your talents. Like, I knew I was great on, on certain parts of this business, so I leaned into that. You might be great somewhere other part of the business, but just lean into it, take action, get around the right people. But there's no excuses for not succeeding. Um, because we all can make excuses. We all have them. But... I never made an excuse. I, I grew up super poor. I grew up, you know, humble beginnings, but I made it twice already because of action and then just being obsessed and being want to be great at something. So hopefully you guys can go be out there and be great. Uh, and, and our message, you know, resonates with you guys. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I mean, two of the things I love hearing, and I think I heard the other one earlier, is that you, you saw the show, you watched the show, you listened to it. And it's like, man, one day I'm going to be on it. You guys did that. Congratulations. That's awesome. And for me, I love that. That's one of the most fulfilling things for me. The other thing Josh said is I owe you guys plaques. All right. Okay. Is that accurate? Yep. Yeah. Right. That's the other thing. So guys, if you're watching, you know, like I, you know, put that on your vision board, do whatever you guys have to do to inspire yourself, to motivate yourself. Cause like for me, like that is the, the, the thing that's most fulfilling for me to hear, Hey, we want to be on the show. Now we're on the show. Hey, I want to be a millionaire. Now I'm a millionaire. Like that for me is incredibly rewarding. So yep. thank you guys for, for sharing that with me. Absolutely, Steve. Thank you for everything. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, guys. Thank you all. See you all tomorrow.
Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors. 